0: And girls, and welcome to another episode of The Power Three, a Doctor Who podcast where three fellas, who some might call middle aged or who others may refer to as grumpy, vent their spleen and other organs on anything and everything to do with their favourite TV show. This week we turn back the clock as we revert to our original podcast format, as we take a look at three Doctor Who stories from the telly and share our thoughts and opinions of them. Although recent episodes may have broken the mould set out with at the start, one thing that still hasn't changed from our original remit as as we're all still three Doctor Who fans sharing our love of all things police box related. I'm Kenny Smith. I've been dubbed the Big Finish Official Archivist which means my laptop is crammed full of lovely files that you'd just love to see. And that's before we even talk about the ones labelled Sheridan Smith pictures. And with me today are my co-conspirators. So let me introduce them to you. First, we have Tom Harris former journalist, former public relations officer and former Labour Party member for Glasgow South, but currently dreading the arrival of season 24 on Blu-ray. It's Mr Tom Harris. Say hello, Tom.
1: Three things. Let's rewind and let me correct that introduction. I am not a former journalist. I am a journalist and I am not the former Labour Party member for Glasgow South. I'm the former member of Parliament for Glasgow South. Thank you. Carry on and current pedant as well and completing our unlikely trio
0: it's the man (laughs) whose knowledge of comics from the gold silver bronze eras is almost unparalleled he knows the most obscure superheroes of all this is the man who can tell you the secret weaknesses of mermaid man he can tell you the origins of the chocolate starfish and he can tell you how the golden shower got her name it's the one the only mr
1: david spiel dave say hi Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Yes. Thank you for joining as well. I, I still want to know about the file of Sheridan Smith photographs in Kenny's computer and whether the police know about it. <laughs> I wonder if Sheridan she knows about it. How many of them were taken with a long lens, Kenny, with you sitting in your car eating a box of donuts? <laughs> you can't answer it's actually,
0: but There's a few. There's a few. <laughs> as, I, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be looking at three stories once again and today it's three two-part stories from the classic era, which means it's a nice and easy week when it comes to watching things for research and comment. We're taking a look today at a triumvirate of tales from three distinctly different eras of the show with The Edge of Destruction, The Sontaran Experiment, and The Awakening. And of course, if we're returning to look at TV stories that can only mean the exciting return of entries from TARDISFANDOM.com wiki. We're going to start today's episode with the first of these to be broadcast chronologically, and that means it's the Edge of Destruction.
2: Grandfather. Grandfather! The ship can't crash, it's impossible. Well, there's something here.
0: Inside the ship. But that's not possible.
1: The doors were open. But
2: where would
0: it hide? In one of us. Something terrible is happening to all of us. There's a strong force at work somewhere which is threatening my ship. You sabotaged my ship. Oh, don't be so stupid. I know it. I'm sorry. of it. You attacked us. How dare you?
2: And is it possible then? That this is the end?
0: Let's hear about that from TARDISFANDOM.com
1: the Edge of Destruction was the third serial of season one of Doctor Who. The story is unique in the original series in that it is set entirely inside the TARDIS and features only the regular cast members. The BBC initially committed to four episodes of Doctor Who midway through the production of An Unearthly Child. This was up to 13. Together, An Unearthly Child and The Daleks only totaled 11. With a tiny budget, The Edge of Destruction was commissioned to fill the remaining two episodes and fill out the season. According to Verity Lambert, the first two serials had gone over budget and the production team needed to save some money. According to David Whitaker, there simply weren't any scripts available and it was either this script or going off the air for two weeks. In the end, he wrote the script in two days. Narratively, the story was crucial as its events bonded the travellers so they were no longer just mismatched people forced together, but a group who could trust one another. It also offered the first hint that the Doctor's TARDIS was not his own shown by his lack of understanding of its abilities. Finally, it was also the first instance of the Doctor name-dropping historical figures. The second episode of this serial The Brink of Disaster is as far as viewers can watch the Hartnell era and the series itself from the very beginning in televised format before running into a missing episode the following serial Marco Polo remains absent in its entirety
0: That was remarkably brief considering what we're used to from our friends there
2: Dave? Yes The Edge of Destruction I hadn't watched this in a very long time and I find myself saying that quite often when we talk about Doctor Who stories I really really enjoyed it this time it felt you know the key words that I felt described it best were citizens' theatre or um, Wednesday night upstairs at the Glasgow Tron. It was, I think, the stagiest Doctor Who has ever been, and I don't mean that as in to mean that it's bad necessarily. Just uh, the minimal setup of of actors and and um, you know and sets, I suppose, for for want of a better way of putting it. I think it's it's worth noting that episode two has the same name as an episode of Thunderbirds, which is quite an interesting bit of trivia, and it's also the story the director of the second episode, Frank Cox, is the first person involved in the production of Doctor Who who I ever met in real life. So it's quite nice watching the bonus feature and seeing him chatting away and seeing what he had to say. Another point I have to make about it is that it's it's a broken spring story. Everything that's gone wrong all hinges on a machine, a bit of machinery and the that's not working. And the original series only did this once again, really, in the face of evil. But when the revived series came back, it seemed to be the, the favourite cause for everything that was happening from one particular showrunner who I won't name because I've been quite critical of them in the past. So it was very nice to revisit it. There's obviously a couple of points where William Hartnell fluffs a little and Caroline Ford and William Russell maybe aren't as convincing as Jacqueline Hill. But I was really struck by how consistent they all were, how claustrophobic it, it all was. It's the sort of story that they could do again nowadays and it would work just as well. You could change very little about the script because it's all about the situation. And the drama, you learn a lot more about how the characters interact with each other. You see them all warming and becoming friends. It's really quite nice at the end, and when, when they leave to go for a wander about in snow and their pals. By that point, I was very surprised. I expected it to be really quite, for some reason, to be really quite shoddy and badly done. But I was really impressed by everyone in it. And you know, for early days, that they were really able to push the envelope as far as they did and do something really quite radical.
0: That's quite interesting because the first time I saw this was back in 1990 when it was shown as part of the BSB, that was British Satellite Broadcasting, Doctor Who Weekend. We'd actually got BSB just about a week beforehand because my dad really wanted to watch the sports on it and the movies. And I, of course, knew that Doctor Who Weekend was coming up, but I didn't mention this when I was sort of saying, we really should get that, Dad, because, you know, you and I can watch the sports. and, And my sister wanted the music channel, the power station, and my mum got like the news and stuff that was on it. So we got it. So the BSB weekend came around. And this was the last thing that they showed on the Saturday because all the links for this were pre-recorded. And we had, and here we go. And we'll finish today with Doctor Who and the Edge of Destruction. So the titles begin and then it opens. And it's showed, they showed episode two first. They've got the episodes the wrong way around. They've got the Edge of Destruction and the Brink of Disaster. So it opens and it's really, really confusing. You think, what the hell is going on? Because I'd always heard that Edge of Destruction was slightly mad anyway. And it took about five minutes to realize, hang on, they're showing the wrong episode here. So it was really, really slightly mad and not quite, you didn't quite know what was going on even more than when you watched it the right way around. But what was um, interesting, is what you said, Dave, you picked up something that, I, I scribble down in my notes. It definitely feels like a theatrical piece. This is definitely something that you could imagine being done as a bit of almost a bit of experimental type theatre. You wouldn't need that many yeah. sets. Obviously, mm-hmm. you've got your TARDIS console, you've got the very bizarre bedrooms. How bizarre are those? The things that come out and they don't look really that comfortable, these no, space not at all. things. Not at all. We get to meet the food machine as well, which is rather good. It gives us sort of like a hint of how domestic life is. I mean, I'm glad we didn't get to see the TARDIS toilet, but that's pretty much all that's really missing in terms of setting up the domestic field for it all. But it's very, very strange to start with the psychological factor why people are going a little bit mad. I mean, it does not it's not very clearly stated that the TARDIS is getting inside their heads to try and warn them something's wrong. They
2: just go a bit mad for no apparent reason. Yeah, that, that was one thing I thought was really interesting, that the whole... It was almost like the doctor first getting the idea that the, the TARDIS was alive. Which kind of gives further credence to my feeling watching early stories was that the Doctor and Susan really haven't been in the TARDIS for very long. It's not that long since they went on the run. I love the idea of the TARDIS just struggling to communicate with them rather than just putting something up on a screen saying, the fast return switch is broken, everyone. (laughs) You know, it doesn't really know how to communicate with them. Yeah. Tom, what did you think? It was interesting to read
1: that bit from TARDISWiki.com saying that this was written in in two days i I, i'm i'm kind of surprised it took that long and 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 i'm also a little surprised that it was written because it kind of feels like you're talking about experimental theater it kind of almost feels like it felt like improv and it didn't really have, have much of a story i thought it was interesting you said that on on b sky b it it reversed the the order of the shows because it did occur to me that edge of destruction and brink of disaster are both exactly the same phrase. And yes. you and you could have called you could have switched those titles and it would have made no difference whatever. Yeah. But it's interesting that they showed brink of disaster first and 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 actually I, I'm I'm guessing it didn't make that much less sense than watching them the right way around. It's fine, but I think when I found out you know years later that this was a kind of filler to, you know, to add, you know, to complete the 13 episode obligation and it was basically written quickly in order to, you know, to complete that. It makes a little bit more sense. It it doesn't Although it moves the narrative on a good bit in terms of how well they work together as a crew, and introduced the food machine, and and it, and it gives you the sense for the very first time really that the TARS is actually a spaceship and not just a, a machine for moving you know for moving you around the universe, and that's all important, and it was important in later years. It just doesn't feel that substantive to me. It does it, it does feel like filler actually, but it's, you know it's it's worth from a historical point of view in terms of you know what it established and how important it was to the Doctor Who story. It's important, but it's not that entertaining. I mean, I don't know what the viewing figures were like, especially on episode two, but I i wouldn't be at all surprised to hear that they had gone down substantially, not just since the Daleks, but since episode one.
0: The last time I watched this before doing the rewatch this week was back in early 2014 when I started with an unearthly child and thought, oh, this is around the time Marco Polo was due to be returned. where well, the rumour was so strong that it was coming back. And I thought, oh, by the time I get there, it'll, it'll drop on iTunes or something like that. So I'll be able to just carry on and watch it straight away. But of course, I'm still waiting. So I never completed my watch through after that. I've never actually come <laughs> back and tried to carry on since then. It's just been watching an episode here and an episode there. There was, of course, a clip of this story on the Hartnell Year's VHS when it was in Arabic. And to be honest, it probably made more sense when it was in Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: feel exceptional then because I thought I didn't I didn't struggle making sense of it whatsoever at all, I thought it was absolutely fine. There was moments watching it when I sort of thought oh yeah, that's the bit where they expanded in the book and had Ian and the Doctor go off and investigate the Tarvis engines and stuff. It made me want to reread the novelisation. No, I think it's very good. And it's, you know, they were making it by the seat of their pants in those days. You know, there was no formula. There was no format. You know, it literally only started transmission a couple of months beforehand. So I think its strength is that it's, it's so different because, you know, they hadn't settled really on a on a way of doing it yet and all bets were off and they could do what they liked. And I think it's a nice example of that because it, it's not too long, really, in the next year or so before it starts to settle down and you wouldn't really get anything as experimental as that. I think it's fair to say that, you know, it's a bit a bit shaky, but I've, I've read that they really didn't get enough rehearsal time, as much rehearsal time as they needed in the early days and that became a bit of a sore point because it, it gets to kind of further on in the first series and you get to the keys of madness when it seems like the they really do seem like they're making it up as they go along sometimes i think it's real, and i was really struck by how good bill was i was really i'm a purple fan anyway i'm a big fan i always defend them, but i was really impressed by him in this the speech at the end when when the light comes down and he's just sort of silhouetted again you know not silhouetted but you know against the console that you can imagine that working very very well on stage it was very 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 good
0: yeah i didn't dislike it i've got to make that clear i did enjoy it but it's just i just think there's the through consistency to the cards. I like the fact the doctors, he does have, it's really the last of the the really alien get off my ship doctor. And then after that, he becomes a lot more friendly, as you mentioned earlier, particularly at the end. I love him leaving the TARDIS with Barbara and arm in arm. And I think that's a really nice touch. But it's just a shame because I want to know about that giant footprint.
2: Yeah, we should talk about that, shouldn't we? The Marco Polo rumor. I don't know if we talked about it before. Did we do it? Did we talk about that when we did missing episodes? I'm not sure. But I remember, Web of Fear and Enemy of the World came back and everyone was convinced it was all three stories. And then a couple of months, they didn't appear. Marco didn't appear. And then a few months later, it was, oh, yeah, it's going to be out by Easter. And I remember buying a new iTunes gift voucher. So I was so sure. <laughs> I was so convinced by what people were saying, you know, because do we name names? Go for it. I don't know. I don't know if that's fair. Do it. It's a long, it's a long time do ago. Do it. Do it. Well, you obviously, people were going by what they were told. So somebody somewhere must have... It was either ripping the, the mickey or genuinely thought. But I remember outpost Scarrow being really quite convinced that it was back amongst others. And I think I think they were sold apart, basically. I think there was... People were, I think, got carried away with the excitement of it all, the, the Omni rumour. We have talked about this, I'm sure. It's not fair to criticise people because they really... They were only going with the sources. But I, I aye, I knew a lot of people who <laughs> were utterly convinced and then when it didn't appear on the Friday morning, were like, right, whisk it on. <laughs>
0: Happy times and places. Tom, what's your final thoughts on it?
2: I think it's it's a kind of a gem
1: in that, uh, you know, it's the first are uh, I like stories that are set entirely within the TARDIS. I don't think it's been done enough. So in that respect, I think it's well worth uh, a revisit. I just think you need to temper people's expectations about how great the episode itself actually is. It's a lot better when it was talked about before it was rebroadcast than it actually turned out to be but so much was the case with so many of cl- classic early Doctor Who's. but it's, it, I have some affection for it which kind of outstrips the degree to which it's entertaining let's put it that way
0: Absolutely, I think that's fair enough Right, let's jump forward in time by 11 years and head to a rather burnt out earth apparently where we find a bunch of South Africans as Stire conducts the Santaran experiment. We've got an invasion on our hands. Invasion? <laughs> oh, you mean Styr? Thousands exactly like him.
1: They're going to invade Earth. The
0: entire galaxy. Who are you?
2: Where are you from? You were destroyed in the thirteenth century. You are blown to smithereens You may have seen one of us. What's Styr doing here? Well, he's killing people. Santarans never do anything without a military reason. The
0: machine serves him, captures my crewmates. We shall
2: destroy your planet. You've done nothing for 10,000 years while we were an empire! Killed him!
0: And I will tell you what our friends at Tardisfandom.com say. They tell us that. The Sontaran Experiment was the third serial of season 12 of Doctor Who. Shot entirely on location, it was the shortest story of the 1970s, with only two episodes. An outdoor shoot, all scenes were unusually recorded on videotape rather than film. Script editor Robert Holmes was not a fan of six-part stories, believing they were padded, so for season 12 he decided to have one four-part story and one two-part story. With Christopher Langley's The Space Station already in the works, he looked to Baker and Martin to fill the gap. As an outline, Holmes asked them to set it on Earth and bring back the Sontarans. This would help them capitalize on the costly ship interior and Sontaran costume used in the Time Warrior. Baker and Martin were commissioned to write the script on the 23rd of May and asked to deliver episode one shortly after on June the 5th. Part two was in by the 6th of July and Holmes rewrote it extensively removing a subplot in which Varro was revealed to be a victim of mind control. Despite Holmes' early intentions, a new Sun costume was made for Kevin Lindsay. During filming, Tom Baker slipped and broke his collarbone, leaving the injury to be more serious. Producer Philip Hinchcliffe and designer Roger Murray Leach drove Baker to the nearest hospital. Worried he might have recast his new star, Hinchcliffe was relieved when the injury turned out to be much less serious than first thought, with Baker able and willing to continue filming the next day. The scarf the Doctor wore covered the Doctor's neck brace, but Fighter Ranger Terry Walsh did end up doubling for Baker in several shots. This story started a very short story arc, with the Doctor, Sarah and Harry trying to return to Nerva to get back to the TARDIS, but being interrupted. They would return in Revenge of the Cybermen, albeit hundreds of years prior to when they had originally arrived.
1: Tom. I remember watching this. Actually, before I go down that rabbit hole, a couple of comments on that wiki entry. Robert Holmes was not a fan of six-part stories. He decided to have one four-part story and one two-part story. My memory isn't great, but I think there was more than one four-part story in season 12. Is that a typo? yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Four four four-part stories and one two-part story should be the right
2: one, yeah? There was two four-part then
1: a two-parter, then a six-parter, then a four. Of course, of course, Genesis was six. Yeah, but certainly not one four-part story. And that's an interesting insight, which I wasn't really aware of. That Hinchcliffe worried that he might have to recast the Doctor because of of Baker's injury. I had not you heard of that before. Yeah, it was
2: just nope, just the production schedule and the the broadcast yeah.
1: schedule and all that stuff. Yeah. Let me take you back in time to when this was first broadcast, because I was. Uh, I mean I loved this when it was first broadcast. I still love it now instantly. I just think it stands up really really well. But at the time I remember feeling that the BBC had decided to ditch the TARDIS altogether uh, because there were so you know this and then Genesis and they didn't get the TARDIS back until the end of Avenger of the Cybermen. And I remember at the time discussing with my friends about how horrified we were at the idea that maybe they were going to dispense with the TARDIS altogether. And I and I'm not sure why they had they they decided on this method of travel whether it was entirely to do with the story or whether there were some kind of budget to consider some kind of budget implication of having the tardis i don't know but it doesn't really add an awful lot to the to the story that the tardis it doesn't appear in this or genesis of the daleks or, or you know except towards the end of revenge of the cybermen however anyway that's that was just a a 12 year olds or a what year was this 75. 75. so I was 11 at the time. It's a great story. It makes no sense at all. It's completely bonkers. I mean, the idea that the decision of whether the Sontaran fleet will attack the Earth depends on whether four character actors can survive the attentions of a big, a big stupid looking robot for, for a few weeks. Is, is just a monster. But there, there's some great there's some great kind of set pieces in it, and there's some great uh, images. I mean, the, the, the image when the centauron at the end deflates, I always loved that. Um, the interaction between the characters is fantastic, uh, you know, between Baker and Liz Sladen and, and Ian Martyr, that is just tremendous. I hadn't even registered that the accents were, you know, Africana until I, I saw it in a rewatch many, many years later. At the time, I don't remember it ever registering. And I'm still not quite sure what the significance of that is. But yeah, I mean, it's bonkers. It's cheap looking. It's set basically on a windswept mountainside or a hillside that is basically full of heather and rocks. And in that respect, it's, it's, it looks kind of dull. But, you know, I, I think the, the dialogue and, and the plot, bonkers though it is, makes up for it. Dave, what did you think?
2: Yeah, I watched it last night in prep. It was the last one of the three stories that i watched. Because I watched it quite recently when I got the season 12 Blu-ray set. I really enjoyed it. You know, I'll agree with Tom. It's an interesting thought that the the entire Sontaran fleet is waiting to invade the entire galaxy. I think that's the term they use. And they're all dependent on this utterly sadistic little bastard carrying out all these experiments, as Tom says, on half a dozen poor character actors that have wandered off the motorway, you know. The main thing I got watching it was how exciting it was to go up the Glenifer Braes when I was like, you know, <laughs> three or four years old. I thought, yeah, you know, if Doctor Who's production was sort of suddenly decamped to the BBC Scotland studios for some reason, they could, go, they could do quite well. They could just, go, with some careful camera angles, they could film a Doctor Who, they could remake some time experiment up the Braes. It would be terrific. I liked it. I mean, I would agree that Tom and Liz and, and Ian's chemistry is, is off the charts. It's lovely. It was great watching them all. I mean, as a London fan, I love the <laughs> definitely not the central line. I love that that joke. No, it was really it was it was good, and it does look a bit cheap because it's on video. You can imagine it being done if they would had the money to do it on film. It could have looked phenomenal, but you know, it's it's one of those things. It's you know, it was all circumstances. They they took the studio allocation and the, the outdoor allocation for one six parter and made two stories out of it. So you know, they did a good job and. We all love the story about Tom breaking his collarbone because it, it's, it adds that whole extra spark to it. You know, it's, it's fun sort of watching the, the scenes where he's moving differently because he's hurt himself. And I, I enjoyed watching the the bonus features when he's talking about it. And, you know, he's trying to be heroic and brave. And, he's, and he's, he was really worried that he would lose the gig. No, it was, it was a lot of fun. And, and the Sontarans are a brilliant monster. The cliffhanger is weird for me because I reckon I must have been about two when it went out. But the very first time I saw the story, which I guess from VHS in ninety one, I had a sort of oh deja vu sort of moment, which means that maybe I had seen it but I hadn't registered it. Or maybe it was repeated in the 70s and I registered it. But I remember the the one, the way the cliffhanger was sort of set up. I thought, oh yes, I remember that. Yeah, we love the Centarons in our house. So it was it was good. And Kevin Lindsay's always good.
0: Absolutely agree. He is he is top notch. He's I I love Dan Starkey and what he does. I think everybody would agree that Kevin Lindsay, he cre- very much created the mould that every Sontarin since has been cloned from. My thoughts on it briefly, I'm surprised the TARDIS wiki didn't mention that Glyn Jones, the writer of the Space Museum, plays Kranz. Which That's are. And the robot in it is very, very bizarre looking because you can virtually see the cable through so it's being held up and pulled around. And it does look kind of odd when you see it moving around because it's obviously not an aesthetic design. I mean, think of something like the ProBot at the start of the Empire Strikes Back in Hoth. I'd imagine yeah. that's the sort of look they were trying to go for, but obviously didn't have the
2: resources yeah. Or, yeah. or the time. Yeah. That's true, yeah. yeah. I've mean, forgotten about the know, but actually. I seem to remember the novelisation expands on it all quite a lot. There's a the whole scene with Harry inside the, the Suntaran spaceship. And I think that is the a robot not described a little differently in the book. I can't remember, it's been so long.
0: Yeah, and Harry finds there's a Sontaran clone batch inside the ship as well. I think it's a... It's a, it's a good story. It's very much, yes, it may be a filler, but I think a two-parter And this time is actually, it works. I think it's quite a smart idea. It gets you out in location. The fact it looks completely different from pretty much most Doctor Who that we've had before to this point, the That's fact that it's all been made in video, yes, it does look a bit cheap, completely agree with that, but it also gives it that unique look for the period as well. Tom Baker, very much the doctor from the word go in this one. He's very much settled into it. You can see that the relationships there with Liz Sladen and Ian Martyr. The music on it's fantastic. The sound effects are great. Obviously, they're, in fact, they're quite legendary in a way, given that the Doctor Who Sound Effects LP used quite a lot of these when it was known as the Destructors. In fact, I may hear some of those in the background right now. I think it's very much a story you can pop on quite easily. if you're, It's the end of the day, and you think, what can I put on that's not going to be challenging? I and mean, it's Sarah Jane being threatened by a rubbish snake. So really... What more could you want in life? Yes, some experiment, big thumbs up for me. Let's talk about the final tale from today's time-traveling trips with The Awakening, which was the second story of season 21.
1: There's something very strange going on.
0: You are about to take part in an event that will change the future of mankind.
2: We're in the wrong century. We're not. Little Hodcombe, for your own safety, is a closed area. We're in the middle of a war game. There's been a confusion in time. Somehow 1984 has become linked with 1643. Well, what about the apparitions? Psychic projections. That would require enormous energy. An alien source. You are energizing a force so irresistibly destructive that nothing on Earth can control it. You must stop the war game. Stop it? Are you mad? You speak treason fluently. Stop the games. Let me go. Not yet, my dear. It has to be destroyed. Everybody stay perfectly calm and still. What do we do? More striking the Run! No!
0: It is time at last. You must stop him. Dave, what can you tell us about your weakening?
2: Well. By astonishing coincidence, the first line of the TARDISFANDOM.com entry for The Awakening tells us that The Awakening was the second serial of season 21 of Doctor Who, as Kenny has just told us. It was the third and final two-parter of the Davison era. That's some great insight there. It was, indeed, the final two-parter in the traditional 25-minute format. From this point forward in Doctor Who history, any two-parter would be at least 45 minutes per episode. Despite its brevity, the serial posted a few milestones. It was the first and only contribution by its writer and director. It offered the first outing of the Fifth Doctor's second costume, most notably differentiated by an obviously altered cricket jumper. It was the first time in the show's history that the Doctor set his TARDIS on course to meet a member of a companion's family, in this case, Teagan's grandfather. And it was also the final story designed by Barry Newberry, one of Verity Lambert's original designers. Unusually, this serial had a certain measure of infamy in Britain for one of its outtakes from part two, in which a horse-drawn carriage was seen to apparently destroy a lishgate. The scene became one of the few Doctor Who outtakes to actually be broadcast on the BBC and was also seen internally on BBC safety videos as an example of how not to film scenes involving animals. (laughs) Naturally, for the transmitted version of the episode, the sequence cut before the disaster. Kenny, tell us all about The Awakening then.
0: Awakening was one that I remember reading about in the 1983 20th anniversary Radio Time special, which I'm sure you gents may have bought as well. And it was full of some fantastic production pictures showing the malice being built in this huge face in some workshop. And it looked really, really creepy. And I thought, this is gonna be really good. and was looking forward to this one immensely. And then when it was broadcast, it's one of those ones you watch, you think, it looks really nice. But when you scratch below the surface, there's just so little to it. I and mean, I think there's some great performances. I absolutely love Peter Davison, Mark Strickson, and Janet Fielding. The Doctor, Teagan, and Turlow are a great team. And this, I'd say this is actually the proper season, Where I would say I was a fan and watched this hooked, looking forward to every episode. But for me, it, feels, it just feels a bit of a retread in many ways of things that have gone before. You've, it feels so much like the demons. Very much a, a Diet Coke version of it. You've got yeah. the ancient monster under the ground. You've got a church building. You've got ghostly goings on. You've got some sort of gargoyle creature showing up, and there's something at the end that blows up the church. And for me, it's all right. It just it feels you know it's 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 like diluted Doctor Who. It's there's not a huge amount to it. Some great characters, great performances to it and the iconic imagery I think with the wall being broken down, the smoke coming through and the malice behind it looks fantastic. And we've got the wonderful bit with the creature the projection inside the TARDIS which is quite creepy when you get something invading the TARDIS like that but the BBC Micrographics maybe don't quite help it. I also found it quite strange we've got another member of Teagan's family being introduced. We've previously met her cousin and now we've got her grandfather Andrew Verney But there's just so little interaction between them to make you think Mm. this is a really believable relationship whereas in the 21st century we're used to far more emotive sort of real relief when look at the number of times Jackie gets to see Rose again and she's so pleased to see her and it looks great you mentioned the sets from Barry Newbury which for me they look great the church interiors and such like inside the Squire's house but we thought there's so much going with the Queen of the May and Burning Tegan and the fact the villagers are all going along with it, with
2: the local war game, it just doesn't quite add up for me, I'm afraid. Interesting. I kind of disagree 100% on this one. I think it's, aside from Caves of Androzani, I think it's the best story in season 21. It's kind of surfing the zeitgeist for for the period, because this was around about the time that the BBC was also doing a programme called By the Sword Divided, which was in that certain period of English history. It was relevant to, to what you know the preoccupations were. I think it's really good. You know, you, met, you missed out. Obviously, we met Teagan's auntie briefly in Legopolis. I quite like the fact we see another member of Teagan's family, and I think for a two-parter, there's not really the room to give them a as much of a believable relationship. I think they actually came across a bit more connected than than Teagan and her cousin did in Ark of Infinity. I think the the exterior film work is is gorgeous. You know, they they got they got some good days for it. The regulars all get just about enough to do, it. even Turlow. Who does spend a little bit of his time locked up in a cell, which happens quite a lot to Mark Strixon. He at least gets to meet Tegan's uncle and, and brings that in. And there's the other sort of interesting aspect of it where the Doctor spends quite a lot of his time in the story hanging about with a former member of the cast of the Liverbirds, which is quite interesting. And that's another point worth making because this is a story which shows the Doctor essentially acting opposite who I imagine Peter Davison's core fan base with in the day. <laughs> maybe women, women <laughs> who are slightly older than him. And it's so interesting, he has a very similar type dynamic with Holly James as he does with Never Hughes. It would have been interesting if he'd had a companion of a broadly similar, similar age to himself, maybe slightly older, than having to look after a couple of kids. The comparisons to the demons are fair, I think, but it's, I think there's enough of a difference with all the, the historical reenactment and the psychic energy to sort of, you know, there may be, they have some similarities, but I think the differences are, are greater. And for a two-parter, they pack an awful lot in. I remember the cliffhanger. Thinking the cliffhanger was brilliant. You just no idea and and the resolution being a, dis, a bit disappointing. And I remember my mum, or maybe it was my gran being a little expressing a bit of dissatisfaction with the, the amount of green goop that fell out of Malice's mouth and thought that, because she thought there was no real need for that. But I like it a lot. as I say, after Natrizani is my favourite story of that season. The rest of that season I really struggle with, but not with the awakening. I could watch it any time.
1: Interesting. Tom, where do you sit? I remember enjoying it a lot at the time, but on rewatch, I think its it feels fairly insubstantial. I mean, there's some really strong bits in it having said that. I mean, first of all, a couple of my kind of superficial observations. I thought it was quite a nice idea that a couple of the main characters were actually named after important figures in the Civil War. I mean, Jane Hamden was named after John Hamden, which is... Which is the name, of course, of the national stadium near us, uh, Davy. That's, great. That's and that, great. And that is named after John Hamden of the Civil War. There's quite a few streets in Mount Florida that are named after Civil War generals for a reason that I've never quite worked out. Well, another <laughs> one is uh, Stanhope. <laughs> Uh, Stanmore, Stanmore. Yeah, right. So I thought that was, that was a nice little kind of nod to history. Uh, as you say, the Liverbird was in. It. It's the first time yeah. I'd ever seen her since since she left the Liverbirds. I thought at one point that they'd used the same location as Android Invasion, but it turns out not to be. But there's a scene where there's a a large you know stone cross in the middle of the of the. the the village and it looked very much like the one where tom baker was tied to during an android invasion but i checked the the location and it's not but it it just has that same kind of similar feel to it there's another uh, parallel with the demons you didn't mention kenny which is an attempt to burn at the stake on a maple one of the main characters which of course happened in the demons and was attempted in the awakening with tegan although i have to say who the hell was ever going to be fooled by that uh, dummy made of straw? I mean, who, who for a second, from a distance of 200 yards, would have mistaken that <laughs> for a human being? So, yeah, it, it was a wee bit overly complicated. I noticed on wiki.com that it was kind of it was originally supposed to be four episodes and had to be cut down to two. I suspect if they'd kept it four episodes, they would have used... I mean, given the production at the time, I expect they would have used those extra two episodes to make it more complicated than it actually was. <laughs> I, I thought I,
2: the dialogue I, was really natural for, a, for an Eric Saber scripted story. You know, it wasn't too over-the-top in mm-hmm. that
1: way. Dialogue was okay. You know, the main the main villain was a bit of a pantomime villain, as he often was in uh, this era. But it was, yeah, the, the acting was was quite convincing for the first time in my life, I kind of missed computer screen overlay, because I thought instead of having that that face coming out of the wall, which frankly didn't look remotely plausible, I did wonder if you could have done something with CSO, with a you know an actual human face with makeup on, rather than this ridiculous <laughs> big polystyrene nonsense that was was coming through with with green eyes that really didn't look uh, you know particularly threatening. I thought it was a lot of padding, oddly enough, for a story that only was two episodes. There seemed to be an awful lot of time with people, you know, riding horses around looking for people who are on the run or or locked up in sheds and stuff, and I thought, you know, they could really put in some more dialogue here instead of just people riding around. I think whoever was directing this probably Mm. maybe overestimated how interesting it is to watch people riding around on horses. Um, and and in the very first episode I thought there's just the most I mean I get annoyed when the doctor gets himself out of scrapes using ridiculous excuses so for instance at the end of the first episode of Mask of Mandragora*, when the doctor uses his scarf to trip up the executioner and run away and I always thought even at the time I thought that would looked a bit naff but that was massively professional compared with the first episode of The Awakening where the doctor makes his getaway by disturbing some stationery. Come on. (laughs) But, you know, it's always nice to see Peter Davison again, who was 70 this week, wasn't he? This yes, that's right. Uh, which makes me feel very old. My last observation, and this is not at all to do with the plot, is I hadn't realised how filthy the roundels were on Peter Davison's tablets. They need a right good wash. They need, they need, they need them to get the power spray out and <laughs> clean them because they look filthy. They're horrible.
0: That sounds like a website: it's
1: www.filthyroundels.com
2: yeah. Yeah. That could be our next spin-off podcast.
1: Candy's obviously spent a lot of time searching the internet for But <laughs> You
0: mentioned the location shoot earlier. I completely agree. It looks gorgeous. Most of those locations are within an hour's drive of my in-laws, but I've never actually been to any one hmm. of those. And bizarrely, you know, there's the, the bit where there's the Fords, the stream that Tegan and Turlow run through. That's yes. in the village of Parent Monkton. And my friend Becca was visiting there. Just, she was on a day out because she lives down that way. And she was there with her dad last year on a day out. And she just sent me a few pictures. And lo and behold, she was literally standing where the camera was, where Teagan and Terla were coming through, completely by coincidence. Yeah. And I've actually just been sent a picture, so I'll, I'll pop that up on the website. So was
2: your was your friend doing that? Was she breaking the rules of lockdown? Or was this during the period when people were This was all during to... the lifting. This is when <laughs> we were allowed
0: to go out. Don't worry. My friends don't break the law, Dave, as well, you know. One thing I was thinking, with just when you mentioned, Tom, about the malice, if they were doing that today, how good would that look? Because you'd have it climbing out from behind the wall, bricks and stuff going everywhere, and it would no doubt climb out of the church, and then it
2: would be blown up by a unit or something like that.
0: Today, it would be completely different. It would look great.
2: Yeah. It took me a long time after the story was broadcast to realise that you were supposed to imagine there was a giant version of the whole thing that was inside the TARDIS buried underneath the church, and it wasn't just the face coming through the wall. It would have been nice if they'd had the resources to be able to show that a bit better. We should talk about Keith Jane, who famously played Stig of the Dump in the early 80s, being in this story. That was quite a big deal at the time. Was he Will Chandler? Uh, yeah, he's a brilliant actor. He's done lots of stuff when he was, when he was younger.
1: Considered yeah. as a as a full-time companion at the time?
2: I, I believe so, yeah. It'd be interesting. I don't know how, how well it works. I suppose, I mean, if he'd been as super adaptable as Jamie, then it probably would have gone okay. But it was um, it was really good at the time to see him because Stick of the Dump was a massive big deal in
1: the early 80s. I think if he had become a companion, he might have ended up having the same fate as uh, Katrina, who was definitely an official companion for the Doctor, but who was set to annoy everybody by questioning every single thing she saw once she left Troy. And it'd be the same with this wee guy. You know, it'd be, yeah. oh, how can, how can this horseless carriage move? Oh, shut up.
2: Yeah, I mean, there is that, that brilliant scene right at the end when Tullo is <laughs> great. Mark Strickson is phenomenal. That way he says, I miss that brown liquid they drink here. <laughs> <But> <laughs> ale, no tea. And then Davidson gets to do his dictionary definition, and it um, was just joyous and really, really nice.
1: Can I just say one more thing about Peter Davidson, who I love, and I loved his <laughs> doctor, but it's only when I'm revisiting his episodes. At the time, I thought his, his costume was super cool. <laughs> and, and and slightly alien because I'm Scottish and I didn't even know there was such a thing as you know cricket dress or whatever the hell it's called, but now when I look at it, I just think for God's sake, how naff is that? I mean, you know, it, it just looks awful. <laughs> it's just
2: <laughs> it's
1: got John Nathan Turner in all
2: over it. His hair's pretty That's, cool, Mister.
1: Yeah, I just don't understand this
0: idea that people think of cricket as being a sport it's crap rounders it's what fat guys play because they can't be bothered to do contact real sports football rugby hockey real sports for you but this is just this is just not it's not a sport Cricket is a waste
1: of time and space. Well, I th- I think you're you're you are you are you have just lost us all of our English listeners there. Yeah. Jenny. I mean I, I don't mind cricket, but I remember a friend of mine when I was still an MP, a friend of mine invited me to his uh, office to watch The Ashes, which has been being live from Australia. And honest to God, thank God we were drinking whiskey because other than that <laughs> I, I couldn't have survived it. I, I mean honestly, twenty minutes went past before anything happened. I mean, nobody seemed to move. It was really weird, and then suddenly someone had a point, or for some reason, and I'm never quite sure why that happened. Anyway,
2: I don't think I've ever consciously watched a cricket game. There was a cricket ground quite near where I stayed in Fox Park when I was growing up, and you would see a bit of activity there during the summer. But I, um, we didn't we didn't do it at school or anything like that, despite having some some pitch sort of stuff sort of set up in the, in the, in the playing tables. But I've never watched cricket. I'm afraid. I don't know It's if it rounders.
1: Or. Well, I think that's I, I call that's what I call. Uh, american baseball is just rounders basically
2: <laughs> yeah and we've just lost all our american listeners now as well <laughs> both of them <laughs> steve sorry steve <laughs> <laughs> steve and Elvin. hopefully we haven't offended you too much <laughs> yeah. so kenny put out his usual desperate plea on twitter for some attention and a few of our followers gave us their thoughts on the stories we're talking about today
0: yes thanks steve as usual, we did a wee shout out to find out what you thought about these stories, The Edge of Destruction, The Sontaran Experiment and Awakening. Jack, who is at her, said, Edge of Destruction, love it. Stories set in the TARDIS are my thing and great character development. Sontaran Experiment, not great, a bit underwhelming, sandwiches between ARC and Genesis but watchable. Awakening, great DARDIS theme, average story, nice enough though which I think is pretty much what we all would have said. Cliff Chapman says, Edge, the novelisation is great, doesn't work for me on TV. Just a bit too avant-garde, like a particularly worthy play that isn't really pacey or clear enough. Sontaran experiment, far more efficient and well put together than I remembered, even if Starr's plan is odd. The Awakening, weirdly forgettable, lots of nice images, but it doesn't really make a lot of sense and just feels like it sort of stops. Outtake may be more familiar than the story. Steve Higgins, who is at Vacuum Boy 9, says, Surn Experiment is an absolute favourite. Full of good humorous bits, but also some great thrills. The moment when the Doctor discovers Styre's camera on Viral's suit really piqued my curiosity when I first saw the story as a kid. John Porter said, Don't outstay their welcome, which is actually quite a good summing up. Catherine, who has one of my favourite Twitter handles, at Girl with a Gun Mike, said, it's been a while since I saw the Suntarn experiment, but Harry, Sarah and the Doc are always a great team. More recently saw Awakening, loved the village setting, though I wish it had been four episodes and built up the atmosphere. Also perhaps a tad more creepy, mister James-like, very good point. Lee Wood says, The perfect length for the stories they told. All of them are well-paced and character-led. And we we'll finish off with a final tweet, which comes from at DWSSG01. Who says all three are great? Awakening is my favourite, as I watched it being filmed in '83, and he's even included a picture of Mark Strickson on location and a slightly blurry photograph. Fantastic! Thank you very much for sharing these with us. If you want to leave us a nice positive review, please do so by popping on to our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at Power of Three Pod. That's the number three rather than being written out in full. And you can also come to our website, which is wwwpowerof And again, that's the number three. And on our website, you can find past episodes and articles where you can also share some thoughts as well, if you want to comment at the end. So Tom, thanks for your company this afternoon. Most welcome. Enjoyed it. Dave, thank you for yours. What are we going to play out with today?
2: Kenny it was an absolute pleasure it was nice to get back to basics and do some old school chatting about a few stories I really enjoyed it and um, we're going to well as we've been talking about two-part stories we're going to play out with It Takes Two by Marvin Day and Kim Weston.
1: The name of that adventure is Inside the Spaceship.
2: Oh or Serial C. That's yes, Serial C. That's the that's the easiest way to avoid all controversy.